Hi, I'm Elise Lunen, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today's guest is Maury Teheripour. I sat down with her at the Goop office right before quarantine, and I loved our conversation. While my conversation with Maury is incredibly relevant for today, particularly for women in business, we have a lot more on current events, particularly for those who are looking to deepen their understanding of anti-racism, privilege, and trauma. We also have a note from our editors on the Goop site about all the ways we can get involved. Before we get to my conversation with Maury, I want to give a quick shout out to our friends at Kohler who helped make today's episode possible. Having two young boys at home is a lot to keep up with, and lately I've noticed how quickly the house, especially the kitchen, gets cluttered, if we're being nice about it. I really appreciate ways to make cleaning up a little faster so I can relax sooner. The team at Kohler offers a range of kitchen and bath products that make cleaning easier. One kitchen upgrade from Kohler is a touchless kitchen faucet. It's completely hands-free, so it makes cooking and cleaning up feel a lot faster. And if you're washing your hands, you never have to touch the faucet in the process. That feeling of peace of mind extends from the kitchen to the bathroom with bidet seats, self-cleaning toilet technology, and the advanced cleansing features of intelligent toilets, all from Kohler. To explore their whole collection of clean kitchen and bath products, head to kohler.com clean. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Maury Teheripour is a faculty member at Wharton who specializes in negotiation. She's the author of Bring Yourself, How to Harness the Power of Connection to Negotiate Fearlessly. Today, we're talking about what Maury calls the human side of negotiation. She explains that the best negotiator is not the toughest person in the room, despite what we might think, and that there's much more to negotiation than just money. Human connection, emotional intelligence, and learning how to be authentic are all key to getting more of what you want. She also offers that we should drop the poker face at work. We learn why there is power in stillness, that filling up space with words might reveal we're not confident in ourselves. We talk about starting open conversations and the mindset of abundance, not scarcity, and that opening ourselves up to unknown possibilities could lead us somewhere unexpected. At what point do we stop and say, but are you happy? Like, is Mm -hmm. there personal happiness and satisfaction? And sometimes that's enough, right? That's sort of, for me, like the overarching thing that's most important that we never allow ourselves to do. So we're always going by somebody else's measurements. I'll let Maury Teheripour take it from here. 
Thanks for being here. Of course. Thanks for your book, too. I picked it up thinking, like many books on negotiation, that it was going to be about like power posing and right. the construction of your best deal. And mm-hmm. it was completely different and in a way so much more empathic and reassuring, I think, for so many. I mean, it sort of opens with this right. idea that many of us just believe that we suck at negotiating, right. myself included. <laughs> I'll do anything, anything to avoid negotiating in that sense. And I think even in the opening, you're like, there are a million other books that will give you the practical steps. Of course. Which doesn't seem like it would actually even – is that even – are those books helpful? They are. I mean, I use them myself for class or pick out bits and pieces of different books because I think that the theory is all there, right? And the things like prepare, know the other side's interests, like all those things – are still true, right? right? It's sort of the strategy behind it is all there. So I think that's the easy part. That's sort of the architecture. Yeah. But it's the fact that we don't talk enough about the human side of negotiations, which is really important. And it doesn't mean that there's got to be somebody sitting across from you. I think a lot of the times when people ask me, what's your hardest negotiations you've ever done or the most important I think back and think it's been the ones I've done with myself um, and making decisions. But people don't think about that as being good negotiations. They usually, especially the people who who have sort of this anxiety, think about the difficult conversations. Think about the transactions that went wrong. Think about the conversations that maybe started off okay but ended up friendships being lost or bad deals being made. And sort of those scars and the bad memories – just kind of stay with us. So when, you know, my class always starts out, I was asked who's afraid of or has anxiety with, and everybody's like. Yeah. And that's sort of where we start. Yeah. I mean, you, we're definitely going to talk about pleasing because that seems to be one of the main, Mm -hmm. I definitely suffer from that. It feels bad, even in the context of negotiating for a car or something like that, it feels bad to not give the other person more money. Let's just, right. I'm like, how can I give away more money always right. in every scenario in life? It's not great. But then I think it also, another point that you get to really deftly is that, and we did an event here, we were talking not about anything related to this. It was about healing and this process of healing that requires rapid cycling of images of things that you want. Mm-hmm. And Bill Bengston, he was giving the the talk. He was like, I bet it's a list of 20 things. And he's like, Everyone, no one can do this. It's so wow. hard for people to actually identify anything that they want, much less to create a list of 20 things. And for women, I right. think it's so hard. Right. It's embarrassing to even think about it. So when you're negotiating for yourself to know your, like, quote, know your value or to know what you want, like, how do you coach people – What's the best process for even getting there? Yeah, it's so different for everybody, right? Because we have, up until that point, we've come from all these different journeys. So whether it's your ethnicity, whether it's your gender, whether it's the cultural background, whether it's your values. So I don't really love being prescriptive, and that's why I don't do it in the book. There's, yeah. you know, I'm not like the do this and then this and then this. Like mm-hmm. very few times do I do that because I think everybody's really different. And we come, as long as we come about it in a way that works for us, that's enough. But with respect to this question, it's really hard. Mm-hmm. It's really hard. And I think that also comes from the way we've been raised, the way we've been talked to, the way I mean, we have the, the, some people that say, my parents told me I could be anything I want to be. Mm-hmm. I could do anything I want to do, right? So with that comes the courage and the, the belief that you can, right? Because that's sort of the music that's been playing in the back of 
your head, right? That's the soundtrack. Somebody like me, where it's, you know, be a doctor, be a doctor, be a doctor, or at some point get married or be an engineer or whatever it is, right? And when you don't do those things and you don't feel like you've lived up to somebody's expectations, then it's hard to find your value because you feel like you've let people down Mm -hmm. and the disappointment becomes your story. You've disappointed others. You haven't lived up to your, your potential basically. So how I teach people is that I sort of have to dig in my own sort of background and know how hard it is for us. Right. And, and really try to ask them to be kind to themselves Mm-hmm. to have compassion for themselves, to have empathy for themselves first and know that nothing in life is really all that easy. And whether if my entrepreneurs, especially like nothing they do is easy, right? Mm-hmm. You don't take vacations, you don't have paid leave, you don't have some like for all the blood, sweat and tears, for all that you've done in your life to be at the point you are here, don't you deserve looking at yourself first? Don't you deserve to look at the mirror before you walk out to go negotiate and say, I deserve this. I deserve to think about the things I want mm-hmm. out of life, out of this conversation. And if not me, then who? And I think people need to be sort of told to have that kind of courage or to to feel that source of, sense of sort of empathy towards themselves. Mm-hmm. That seems silly, but it's absolutely true. It's like you sort of have to give people permission to care about themselves. Yeah. I like that too. And you make this distinction in the book. It's like, I, I deserve I deserve to have this or this is what I need or this is what feels right for me, but to stay away from things like this is what's fair. Right. Because there's no mm-hmm. version of fair ever. Usually when people say, but I want to be fair, the person they're being most unfair to is themselves. Right. And it's sort of a little bit of a, I don't want to say cop out, but it kind of is, is, is that um, you want to live up to other people's expectations. The hard thing is that unless you know how to sort of quantitatively or objectively measure fairness, one person is going to be sort of left out. And you're constantly in this place of trying to please the other person. So Mm -hmm. I can't do this because it's not fair. Well, why isn't it fair? Well, I just don't think that they'd be willing to pay that much. Well, that doesn't make it not fair. That just means that that's what they're deciding to do or choosing not to do. But if the market dictates this kind of value, why can't you ask for that number? Well, I'm not really sure that I wouldn't come across greedy. And so like all these Mm -hmm. excuses start coming out, but they're all really related to the same thing is that again, you haven't given yourself the courage to take care of yourself first. And then on the flip side, you offer that some people will go into a deal and say, well, I should get more because this person can afford it or this business can afford it. And therefore that's fair. Right. And then there's nothing to justify that. And you're left with no leverage. Well, I always think like if your pricing strategy, and it goes, works against you either way. If your pricing strategy is uh, based on what other people can afford to pay you, you're going to go broke. Right. Most people will say, I can't really afford that. But if you think, oh, they're a pharma company or they're financial services so they can afford more, so let me charge them more. Well, if you really want to be fair, how is that fair? Right? right. How it does Is your product changing? If not, then... There's no, there's no sort of standard that's applied to it. It's not objective. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of wonky as I don't want to be. But data really, I think, is sort of uh, the, the one thing that's encompassing all this that allows us to be to have a voice in a way that's objective. And what yeah. I mean by that is that if you start talking about, well, this is what I really want to get, and then you look at the data that backs it up, it sort of starts telling the story, but in a really objective kind of a way. 
And so now you're taking the whole notion of this is what I want, and you're saying this is what the market sort of dictates. And it's a much easier ask because you're saying, but these are the numbers I found. This is the background on this information. This is the data that I have. And people may think, oh, you know, I don't really want to pay that. But they can't say, oh, you're greedy because you're right. coming in with really objective information. So for those people that have a really hard time, I always say rely on the data. Yeah, Let that tell your story so that their emotionality is sort of gone from it. But yeah, it's, it's a really, it's very hard for people yeah. Well, and you ca- you call it all the reasons. We're terrified of hearing no, right? Mm-hmm. And that's probably true of almost anyone. I love right. the guy who did the exposure therapy of just finding something <laughs> that someone would say no to every day every so day. he could become right. accustomed to hearing it without mm-hmm. flinching. Right. But it's terrifying. It's it's shameful, right? Because it's sort of a like you've stepped out of bounds. I'm going right. to smack you down. Our fear of silence. Mm-hmm. And needing to make the other person comfortable. But then I liked I liked that there's sort of the the objective part of it, the data part of it, of really understanding the lay of the land. But then you also seem to make the point throughout the book that there's no there are ways for everyone to, no one a good deal is one in which everyone doesn't get everything that they want. Right, right. Yeah. I think sort of your previous question when you talked about sort of this notion of more. Yeah. I can't remember what podcast it was that I was listening to. I was running when I was listening to it, and I literally hit pause, and I stopped. And I thought that was so profound because they asked the person, what's the opposite of more? And he said, enough. Mm. Right? Like, sometimes enough is just enough. Like, how much more? To what end? Right. At what risk, right? And so I think that even with, like, the gender pay and equity gap and all, all that that we talk about, it's all sort of related to money and more money. And, you know, at what point do we stop and say, but are you happy? Like, is Mm -hmm. there personal happiness and satisfaction? And sometimes that's enough, right? That's sort of, for me, like the overarching thing that's most important that we never allow ourselves to do. So we're always going by somebody else's measurements. How are they going to see this deal? Is that enough? Is it big enough? Is it enough money? But are you happy? And, And I think that's really important. But the way no fits into all that is because it's like instant rejection. Mm-hmm. At least that's how we measure, right? And we think um, this sort of word that we can't get rid of, it's just sort of, it's two letters, it's very powerful. It's like funny that the two very short words that are really powerful that sort of dictate what we do is like no and then ego. And they're profoundly powerful for for the reasons that we talked about. It's the rejection. It's not feeling good about yourself. It's feeling like you said, I overstepped my bounds. I shouldn't have done that. What will they think of me? But no, I think the easiest way to change that fear and to say, you know what, it's not as heavy as you think. Mm-hmm. If you just start thinking, well, they said no to this. It doesn't mean that all doors are closed. It doesn't mean that all possibilities are gone. This is just the only thing they said no to. So if you have a good enough dialogue, if you haven't come in with all guns blazing and you actually are having dialogue that both sides enjoy, you can say, well, why doesn't this work for you? I'd love to make. I'd love to find a way that this would be beneficial to both of us. If not this, then are there other things that that may yeah. better appeal to you? Well, it's like that Abraham Lincoln quote: mm-hmm. "When I get ready to talk to people, I spend two thirds of the time thinking what they want to hear, right. and one third thinking about what I want to say." But really, having a deep and empathic understanding of who right. you're even negotiating with, right. and like how you can win-win meet their needs while also serving your own. Is that a cop-out or is that just smart? 
I think it's smart, but I think it's funny because on the one hand, I'm like, find your value, think about yourself, have the courage to take care of yourself. But on the opposite side of that is that, but it's not all about you. Like yeah. this is a negotiations after all. So curiosity, I think, is so important. Maybe now more than ever, but it's when you stop thinking about what the other side wants as well. When you stop thinking about it in a way that you're saying, you know what, this is kind of like problem solving, right? And rarely do you go into negotiations and get 100% of everything that you want. So if you start sort of listing out the things that are most important to you, things that you would be fine compromising, and then maybe even those things that you wouldn't, then you're starting to go in thinking, how can we make this work? for both of us, right? There's got to be a way. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a cop-out. I just think that your heart is open, your mind is open, Mm -hmm. um, that you have sort of this learning mindset as opposed to a really fixed mindset of this is is what we're going to do, this is how it's going to look, and that's it. There's no room for growth or or move. There's no malleability. It's just this, like, very fixed state of being. And you're limited. The conversation's limited. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts are limited. The opportunities are limited. And if you don't do that, if you go in and say, you know what, I think this is what they're going to want, and I think this is actually my goal, but then you start having this conversation and the richness of this dialogue, you could always almost end up somewhere that you never expected that was probably a thousand times better than what you expected. Yeah, or or the alter, alternate. But I love, I think it's at the end of the book, where you essentially say that the sort of the biggest strategy is to always, to never operate from a scarcity mentality, but operate from abundance, yeah. even in so much as being able to say no and right. walk away and find something else. Assuming abundance, this is when you reconnect with your former students, mm-hmm. assuming abundance gave them the greatest leverage of all because it let them know they could walk away from a bad deal, a bad client, even a bad relationship. As Benjamin Franklin said, necessity never made a good bargain. All right. And that's right. power, right? That's power and leverage is to assume one, that there's probably a way for your needs to be met. And if there's not, right. perhaps it's just an intervention, universal intervention that this isn't meant to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I certainly need, I, I want to take that advice because I feel like whenever I make a decision based in fear or feeling like I'm on my back right. foot, I always, or out of panic, I always, always regret what it is. And as a writer, and someone who's a creative, right. I've certainly been in relationships with people over the years where I'm like, how, how am I this person's bitch for like, <laughs> you know, like how did I let this happen? Right, right. And why did I, like where was my spine? Yeah, it's so true. It's, you know, fear in some ways, or maybe I won't say fear, but anxiety in some ways could be good for us, right? Like mm-hmm. before uh, any class, every class, doesn't matter how many times I teach it. I always have that sort of nervousness in the back of my mind. And, you know, are they going to like me? Is this going to be powerful? And then I'd talk myself out of it, of course. This is going to be great. And that sort of drives more preparation and it drives my performance because I don't take it for granted. Right. You're never overconfident. Yeah, I'm never overconfident. Mm-hmm. I'm really not. It's, it's still, I don't know if I call it humility or just not believing that I'm doing what I'm doing, which is the ultimate imposter syndrome thing, but we'll put that, <laughs> we'll put that right here. But, you know, so there's biblical sort of background to this whole notion of scarcity versus abundance. And, you know, in life, if you stop fearing loss or there not being enough, and you start thinking that 
if I open my heart, if I open my hand, if I open myself up to the possibilities, then life will bring me more. So it's the way you help homeless people. It's the way you help people that have less than you, right? And you think, I'm going to give you opportunities. It happens in corporate settings where, especially with women or minorities, you know, this notion of sort of diversity inclusion conversation it's that we've been told that there's only room for one of us at the table, mm-hmm. one of us at a company, right? And so that fear of, oh, my God, there's only room for one, I'm not going to turn around and help this other person, of course, because if I do that, then they'll replace me because there's only room for one. And so this sort of mm-hmm. starts becoming our truth. And I guess I don't understand because... Why is that the truth? Like, why can't there be room for two at the table? Why, if you've been that good, could you not say, oh, there's two of me? Or let me advocate for so-and-so. And all of a sudden, that brings up the possibility that that room can be made. Like, let me squeeze my chair over and make room for you as well. And But all of that, the genesis is just fear Yeah. that we've subscribed to, right? And the other side of that is sort of the confidence or even lack thereof that you were talking about is that... I always think, well, if that person comes in and replaces me, then maybe I wasn't good enough to be sitting there in the first place, right? And so if I'm confident in my own ability, then I'm going to choose to be kind and I'm going to choose to give opportunities. So I'm going to move over. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I'll enjoy this room a whole lot more if there's somebody like me at the table than if it's all these like 15 white guys and there's Maury. So I'm going to have somebody who's going to be my partner. I'm going to have somebody that I can help. It's just that letting go that fear of loss, mm-hmm. letting go that fear of there's just not enough mm-hmm. that I believe gives us the ability to sort of think more clearly and less out of yeah. anxiety. How, and within sort of what you observe and in, in your, the groups that you teach, how strong is the thrust for women to feel like they need to be tough, strong, oh. and never show weakness or their feminine mm-hmm. side. Is that still as pervasive as I would imagine it to yeah, be? Very. For men too, though. Yeah. And I'll talk about that in a minute, but absolutely with women. Because we've all been taught that the best negotiators are the really tough negotiators, right? Nice guys finish last. Nice girls finish last. Be tough. Toughness shows your strength. But there's no room in that for our own personality or our authentic self, right? Because you're supposed to be this other person and and that's the only way you can win. I think that's nuts. Mm -hmm. And I feel in some ways really privileged that I can, I've actually been able to talk myself into that and it's not always easy, but I feel like it's always been really hard to just pretend, Mm -hmm. right? Pretending is like acting. It takes all your energy And I always tell the women in my classes that imagine if you didn't have to worry about that. Imagine if you didn't have to worry about who was supposed to show up instead of you and all the ways that you were supposed to act or all the ways you were supposed to dress or all the ways that you were supposed to show emotion or not show emotion, right? And think about all the energy it takes to do that, right? And it's like balancing all these things. So now, how much room have you left for actually creating a strategy, right? Mm-hmm. Spending time preparing about what you want to talk about, your goals, your what you want to get out of this conversation, right? We only have so much room. So all of it has been dedicated to the script of the, the, who you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So you have so, much, so little room to actually be a good negotiator and to actually go through this process being fully present and mindful of yourself. 
And you know what? Our superpower is our ability to have emotional intelligence in a conversation, right? Women above all. Mm -hmm. And so the fact is you can't even exercise that because you're constantly in this place of sort of self-judgment. Am I smiling too much? Should I cross my legs? Should I, you know, and it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. So I have to show them that way because otherwise they think, well, I have to constantly be in performance mode. We have to let that go. I feel like we're imprisoned by it and it leaves so little room for us just to be. Mm-hmm. It's like lying. Yeah, I'm, I'm the worst liar on the planet, right? Like I can't keep up with myself. So I'm like, just, <laughs> you know, after question five, I can't remember question one. <laughs> so just let me tell the truth, right? And that's come with enough failures with my parents probably, but but it's the same thing. You spend so much energy trying to keep up with that lie or that story that there's no room to just sort of present your case in a way that could be palatable to the other person. So yeah, they struggle with it all the time. I said men do it too because men also have to play a role, right? There yeah. can't be vulnerability. There can't be openness, maybe not even kindness or empathy. So, and not all men are, you know, kind of in your face. They don't yeah. want to be that way, but they too play whatever role society expects of them. So either way, cross-gender, this whole notion of being somebody you're not is really difficult. It takes yeah. up all your energy. We'll get back to Maury to Haripur in just a second. Right now, it feels more important than ever to create moments of relaxation and restoration in my daily routine. I find that I feel so much more relaxed and more deserving of a nightly glass of wine when my home feels clean. We've been working with the team at Kohler for a long time. They also believe in creating more of these relaxing moments. They believe that clean is a universal feeling and that the little moments of joy matter. Kohler designs products that make cleaning easy and they optimize products and experiences that give you that greater feeling of a clean slate. Among their many home innovations, Kohler makes hands-free faucets for the kitchen. You can wash your hands or food without touching the faucet, which makes cooking and cleaning feel much more efficient. There's no more hunched over with your elbow trying to get the water running while your hands are full. That ease and peace of mind extends from the kitchen to the bathroom with bidet seats, self-cleaning toilet technology, and the advanced cleansing features of intelligent toilets, all from Kohler. To explore their whole collection of clean kitchen and bath products, head to Kohler.com clean. Since I've been cooped up at home, I've been on a bit of a food swing. I'm trying to be a little more mindful around meals and making time to sit down and enjoy what I'm eating. This is easier said than done, considering I'm working from my bedroom right now and I have two little boys running around all day. One thing that obviously makes breakfast, lunch, and dinner at home easier is having some already made meals on hand. And if you're looking for a delivery option, Sakara Life is still delivering their organic nutrition program. They deliver fresh, ready-to-eat meals nationwide and right to your door. Their menu of chef-crafted breakfasts, lunches, and dinners changes weekly and is designed to support overall health. All of their meals are organic, plant-based, gluten-free, dairy-free, non-GMO, and contain no refined sugar. Right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to sakara.com goop or enter code goop20 at checkout. That's S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash goop 
to get 20% off your first order. Back to my chat with Maury Teharapur. It's funny, I loved, um, I don't remember his name, but he was worked for the NFL, mm-hmm. and essentially he was, it sounds like he has a reputation for it, he just does the best deal that he can at the outset. Right. right. And that's always, I don't make deals really for the company, but I certainly hire and we we done our work to make sure you know just try and clean up, make sure everyone's sort of banded and there's it's not all bespoke and all over the place. We right. we're primarily women, no wage disparity. Right. Although I know a lot of big companies are finally cleaning up their data right. on that and making corrections. But similarly, and I don't know if it's me copping out or it's me not wanting to put people well, honestly, I'm like, I just want to give this person the best the best that I can that's within the sort of bounds of what's available at this particular, it's primarily entry-level roles. Right. So, like, how much, and, and that seems to go fine. I'm sure everyone I hire is like, I'm supposed to be negotiating. But I've kind <laughs> right. of, I'm like, there's not really anywhere to negotiate. This, right. is, this is what I can do. How... Is that, am I depriving everyone of a good opportunity to negotiate? Or do you think that there's unnecessary negotiation in this world? And if we were all just a little bit more transparent and clear with our cards, we could save each other a lot of grief? So as I see it, I mean, you know, there's, and we often talk about there's like four parts to every negotiations, right? There's like four phases. There's like the preparation that you do and then you meet somebody for the first time and that's where you build rapport and that's kind of what we call information exchange. And then after that is actually the actual bargaining, if you will. Mm-hmm. Then you close the deal or not close the deal. But so the part with the money and then transaction, that's the bargaining. That's like what people traditionally think of as the negotiations. Yeah. So it's painful. Like talking about money is always just painful, no matter what. Families, friends, clients, whatever it is. It's very black and white. There's not a lot of room for being creative or you know, it just moves in two ways. I say it always goes up or it comes down. That's it. Yeah. But the information exchange that comes before it, that's sort of where it's my favorite part to teach, actually. I could spend a whole semester talking about it because that's the humanity of this all. Like, that's where you're getting to know somebody. That's where they're getting to know you. That's when you're connecting at some deeper deeper level than just a transactional level. Mm -hmm. So that's the part, I would say, you don't want to deprive yourself of or the other person, particularly in hiring situations because it's like dating plus, right? You're almost getting married to this person. So... You want to know what's important to them. Maybe you even want to know things like, are you an introvert or extrovert? How do you prefer working? Are you a morning person? or you know? And that's when you try to build affiliation, when you try to connect with somebody. So if you don't, you know, using your words, if you don't deprive them of that mm-hmm. or yourself for that matter, then this next part is so, in some ways so, I don't want to say nonsensical because it's money. It's important for people. But it takes that parts sort of discomfort away yeah. because now you've said, I value you for so many more reasons than just whatever transaction we're about to do over your salary or my salary. Like if I'm on the, if you're, if I'm the one being hired and I don't know, I just feel like people want to be seen. So if you do that and mm-hmm. you feel like you're genuinely curious about one another, that some kind of connection has been made. I feel like the emphasis we put on the actual bargaining part is is sort of usually overblown. Like it's almost like haggling. If you don't do this other piece, you may as well just haggle over price. Yeah. This other piece says it's more than that, and we're connected, and you're important, yeah. or 
I really want to work for Goop, right? This is why I'm here. And you can actually say some, that to somebody and not feel like you don't have leverage. What you're doing is acknowledging your wants, your needs, your desires, and theirs. Mm-hmm. And you're connected. This other part, I don't think you're shortchanging them. I think it would be really hard for me to believe that you, without even knowing it, put more emphasis on the other piece. And yeah. that's that's the crux of all of this. Well, and I'm also, I sort of ask for their faith and trust that I'll do as much for them as I can. Right. Whether that's in, you know dimes and dollars right. or opportunity or whatever that might be. Right. So it, yeah, but it feels like in our culture, there is so much pressure. I mean, I feel that for myself and I've always, I think I actually am good at negotiating for myself primarily because I, I don't really do it until I'm right. at a point where I feel like I have a tremendous amount of leverage and power right? and can walk away. Right. I just, I never bring myself to the, table until I'm there? I think maybe, and not that this is a therapy session, but I think maybe that you're not giving yourself enough credit for all the other things, like the foundation that you've built Mm -hmm. to then allow yourself to come to the table when you're more knowledgeable, Right. right? Or when maybe your comfort comes from not what price point you should be asking for, but from feeling like, you know, you talked about trust. Trust is really, it's earned, right? So if I didn't know you from Adam and I walked in here and you're like, you know what, this is what I'm going to pay you. There's really no negotiations around this, but you've just got to trust me. <laughs> I feel like, are you kidding, woman? Like, what are you, nuts? Like, I don't know you. But if they say that to you, if they agree to that, mm-hmm. that means they're not taking a leap of faith. They've seen something in you. They've felt something in everything that precedes that moment that says, yeah, I'm going to trust her. Yeah. There's nothing that disproves that, that for me at this point. So just I think you should give yourself more credit for that because it's like a, they, they fall into that place knowingly. Right. I think that's really important. Well, I tried to be transparent. I mean, you talk a lot about within negotiation this idea of, when you hold cards to your chest. I mean, again, you're not at all prescriptive about it, but there is this idea, right, that people should, right. you don't give away information, you don't you don't share. Right. But that's also kind of a myth, right? right. And I feel like it's, when I explain market rates or whatever it is, I think invariably that's also trust building. Right. But I would hope, it seems like the world is moving to a more transparent place in general, Right? I think so. Yeah. And that for those who want to do the work up front, like the data is there. Right. Right. And I think that there's a lot, you know, I I talk about sort of connectivity in the book and and how we're really super disconnected world and how social media, our phones, Mm -hmm. everything electronic has made us completely disconnected or not present. Right. But the upside of all those things is that it's given us, or it's democratized information for us, right? So we have access to so much more. There's really no reason why you would walk into negotiations and be like, I just couldn't find those numbers or figures and uh, I didn't have enough information. You find anything these days, right? And so, yes, the world is more transparent because I think people have access to more information. So mm-hmm. they'll find out one way or another. But transparency doesn't make space for people's humanity. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the difference is that it's not, again, not just about the pay, right? Not just about whether they're, you know, Jane is being paid as much as John. 
It's whether when Jane and John are in the room and they're at the table, if Jane's opinion matters as much as John's does. Mm -hmm. Because then otherwise, that's why I keep saying, like, it's not just about the money. That doesn't tell the whole story. That doesn't, you know, having a bigger pipeline just gives you access to more people. It doesn't make them happier or want to stay. It's just more people. Mm -hmm. So I think the two have to be blended. The transparency is important, but people still have to feel engaged. Now, I don't know if... We're leaving enough room for that because we're so focused on closing the pay gap. And again, I don't want to make it seem like women shouldn't get paid as much or, or, you know, just anybody who's not making what they think they're worth. But I feel like there's another element there that we never really ask for or fight for. And it's worth spending our time thinking about ahead of the fact, right? And so, yeah, I think that's really important. But, you know, I'm going to go back to the point where you said... um, you know, the sort of the poker face, like come to the table without showing. Who likes that? Yeah. Like how how much do you really want to talk to somebody who the entire time they're like, <laughs> <laughs> right? It gets uncomfortable. So like our emotions make us human. Our our passion drives our thinking, right? Our our smiles make us connect. It gives us warmth. Even the frown, even even that bout of maybe a little bit of discomfort from maybe a bit of that anger that comes out, all those things are, are, inform- are the, the pieces of information that drives our decision-making. I think when people talk about there's no room for emotion at the table when you're negotiating, it's just that there's really no room for it to overtake you because at that time, you're not thinking anymore, right? Something right. else is ta- thinking for you. But I don't know. I just kind of feel like it's nice to look at somebody and they smile after you say something. You're like... Huh, like there's a warmth in that that says maybe just maybe I connected with something that they want. I, I, I just enjoy it. It's humanity. So how, I know you, you won't be prescriptive, but what, take mm-hmm. us through how we can all become more comfortable with silence. Because that, <laughs> is, that is impenetrable for some people mm-hmm. and terrifying, right. right? I think for almost everyone. Right. I remember being at dinner the first week I was dating my husband and he's not really a talker and I was just chatting I was just frantically trying to fill space and he was like it's okay like we can just sit here silently right just kind of dickish but um (laughs) and I married him anyway yeah (laughs) I I understood what he he was like it's okay like you're working too hard right which now I'm I can spend two hours and we barely speak right nice Mm -hmm. but so how do we stop ourselves from rushing in? Right. Well, there's a, the practical aspect of that. Because if you, let's say you've made a presentation to a client and you've given them, you know, this is what we can do, this is who we are, and oh, and this is how much it's going to cost you. You know, people need time to think, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we don't make decisions talking the entire time. So I always think, you know, that moment of letting somebody just have thoughts, you know, consider what you just even them, right? That's just practical, right? Mm-hmm. I can't think and talk at the same time if I'm trying to run things through my through my head. So part of it is just the practicality of it. Like let them, you know, in perfect silence, give them space and let them come back the way they need to come back, right? The other part of it is that when you're most comfortable with yourself, it's when you're most comfortable in silence, right? Mm-hmm. Like one of my best friends it, she feeds my soul, not because, I mean, at the beginning when we see each other, after not seeing each other for a while, we talk, 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 right? There's gossip, there's this, there's that. But when it's the most comforting, when I feel like I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be, 
is when we can just sort of sit in each other's presence and not say a word. Mm-hmm. And there's that understanding, the familiarity of it all, right? So that comes from both the confidence I have in the relationship and the confidence I have in not having to overplease or do something that is going to somehow appeal to that person. So that's the feeling like we always want, right? So when we fill up the room with words because we're not completely comfortable with silence is because we're not confident in either the relationship or yourself, right? Mm -hmm. It's very hard for people, right? And usually in negotiations, when you start talking too much, you're negotiating against yourself Mm -hmm. almost the entire time. And you're not giving that person space or even yourself to just let people think, Mm -hmm. right? Somebody's going to break the silence at some point. Why does it have to be you every time? It's one of the most difficult things for people to do. It's really hard for people. Do you have any advice? Like, I, you know, let's say that we all do our research. I think women are really good at that. Mm-hmm. We come to the table in our power, ideally with leverage and understanding, and then you don't get what you want. Is that, is that the opportunity when you're like, okay, can we f- find some sort of common ground? Is that when you go back in to say, let me, can I understand why? Yeah. Like, how do you, is it recoverable? Absolutely. Okay. So let me go, because these two are connected, back to silence for a minute. It's usually, the silence is uncomfortable because you're telling yourself a story of what you did wrong. Did you say too much? Should, did you ask for too much money? So it's sort of this whole notion of storytelling is very powerful in negotiations because you can in that moment say, wait, slow down. Maybe they're just thinking, right? You just change this whole anxiety that's running through your head. It's just a conversation, right? And this wasn't the right one. And like we we can still get to what we wanted, but maybe we were looking at too specific of a path or not leaving enough room for other ways of getting there. And so, you know, there's this thing like sales training. People are taught yes is yes, maybe is yes, and no is maybe, right? There's no such thing as no. And there's not much about sales training I love, but that I I think is really (laughs) kind of fun to remember, right? There is no, like no doesn't have to stick. Yeah. It's just no to this. Like there's, so as long as we don't take it as as a judgment of us or a rejection of us, and it's not so personal, then you're thinking, all right, we'll just come back to the table. Maybe yeah. another day. Maybe we just need to both step away and think, now that we've talked about all this stuff, maybe there's something we're both missing, right? But you sort of have to have that connection to allow you to do that in the first place. Yeah. Right? Or there's a mismatch in, in value or an idea of Or maybe it's supposed value. to be no. Yeah. And maybe it's time. Right. Which I think is also terrifying for people right. to contemplate. But that's why we stick around and bad relationships and bad jobs and bad situations right. for far longer. Again, yeah. it goes, I guess, to that idea of scarcity. Scarcity and not giving ourselves the opportunity to think about the power that we have or the leverage that we have, right? And in bad relationships, maybe it's the fear of loneliness. Maybe it's this desperate notion of what will society think if I'm not married or have kids by this point? I've been in this really horrible relationship for three years, but you know, I need to get married soon. So I'm just going to kind of stay in this, right? Mm -hmm. Or whatever it is. But when we fear life without somebody, when we fear this desperation to hold on to something, whether it's bad for us or not, that desperation makes you think that you have no other options. Right. And in the absence of options, 
we feel that desperation, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, in really practical terms of negotiations, I would say go out and do your research and find out that if not this, like if you don't get exactly this, can you, it's sort of like shopping around, can you get something else that will provide you this comfort of thinking, I do have other options. This isn't the last deal in the world, right? This isn't the only car I can drive. This isn't the only place I can have my wedding. This isn't. So when you start thinking about other options, and by the way, other options can just be time. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have to be today. Doesn't have to be right now. I can wait. Then you sort of relax into this place of power because power comes from knowing that this isn't the last deal you're ever going to make. This isn't the last man you're ever going to date. Mm-hmm. This isn't, you know, whatever, the last anything, right? Or the only client you're ever going to have. It's that there could be something out there, maybe better. Yeah. I think it requires too that mindset shift, mindset shift, just thinking about dating. Cause I certainly was like this always of like, I don't know if it's, if women are just investors. And so there's also that always that feeling of like, well, I put in so much, so much time, time. <laughs> put in so much time into this shitty right. loser. Right. Like I can't leave until I've reaped my reward. And same with, you know, dead-end jobs. Right. I don't know if women are particularly susceptible to that or what that is or... I don't know. I had to adjust my early on sort of this, like, okay, I'm, I'm in a bumper car and these are just like, this is course correction. Right. This is a lesson. And I, could, I don't need to like ride that lesson all the way to the end. Right. right. But God, it's hard. It's really hard to know when to... Men are better day traders, you know? Women are long-term investors. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they're better day traders either, but uh, but it's the the I think the difficulty in that comes from yeah, as you're sitting there talking about these like loser relationships or all they like I'm <laughs> like, all these things are coming to my head, but or just bad decisions. I always think that I didn't know what happiness meant, mm-hmm. like true satisfaction or true happiness. And so, or didn't even know to ask myself, are you happy? Like really happy, right? And I don't mean happy like you're walking around and, you know, whistling while you work kind of thing, but just this notion of feeling satisfied. And so if you don't ask yourself that, you don't know what that looks like, or you don't even know what that feels like, then you don't really know what you're fighting for. So... If your everyday is mediocrity, right? If everything is fine, just being okay, then that's all you're ever really going to know to want, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the shame of it all. Like, you know, that's why I think people who are in abusive relationships, a lot of the times they've had parents who were abusive to one another, right? A mother that was disrespected by the father. So if your boyfriend talks to you that way, you've grown up, that's all you know. We've never really stopped and said, is that Mm -hmm. okay though? Or is this just a just a really bad example? I think that's really important. I, I just, you know, I I don't know. I don't even know if I still know sometimes what true joy and happiness means mm-hmm. in all that I do. Sometimes it's just a grind. But when I stop myself and I ask myself, where are you? Like, you tra- does traveling 90% of the time make you happy? You know, if you just give yourself the the space or the stillness to check in with yourself, I don't know if we'd make half the bad decisions we make. Yeah. Well, it comes back you know? to like, yeah, making that list of things that you want. 
Right. I've written down four things of 16 things to go. Four is a lot, actually. It is a lot. But it is, it's, I think for so many of us, we're driven by fear. I mean, I certainly felt it. It was like any relationship would do rather than staying alone. Like any job, like I just need to be employed, which of course, I mean, there are practical reasons for all of this, but- you know, in some bad, bad relationships that I had in my 20s, I realized I was like, there is nothing lonelier than being with the wrong person. Right. But it took, God, it was hard to get there. I don't even know how we got here when we're talking about negotiation, <laughs> but like these are, the, you know. that's what it is. It's it is life. what it is. And it's like you get into these things that, these situations that appear fixed and right. you feel like you don't have choices. Right, and right. You made your bed, you sleep in it, you pack your bag, you carry it. Right. And I don't know, it's interesting to like just how to just backing all of us up into a place of more fluidity. Right. Because I think most people will never be irresponsible, but it wouldn't be bad for us to operate with our own interests in mind. Oh God, no, it wouldn't at all. But... You know, we disallow ourselves from doing that um, for whatever reason. There's, again, this this notion of having options, having choices, goes back to the whole scarcity, abundance thing, right? There's an abundance of opportunity. But when you think you're limited for whatever reason, be it a bad relationship, being money, being you know, the, the job, whatever it is, then that becomes a very scarce place to operate mm-hmm. from, right? So you take whatever is given to you. We can think we're not allowed that, right? We can think we're not like, you know, again, earlier on when I was talking about my parents, my dad wanting me to be a doctor, there's not much in life that I allow myself to regret because regret is really hard. It just sort of stays with you. It's like this ugly, bad, heavy coat you can't take off, right? It's just like there. And But I know distinctly there are certain things that I regret. And I remember going to my college reunion a few years ago. I think it was 20, it could have been 25 years, but anyway, we'll just say 20 because it makes me younger. But, and I walked around, I went to Barnard, but we were on the Columbia campus with my friends and we're on college walk, which is just magnificent. And it was a beautiful night and we're laughing and it's so much fun. And then all of a sudden the sadness came over me and I thought, what is going on? I was like deeply sad for a moment. I realized that you know, they had been sitting here talking about all these great classes they had taken, so-and-so, this professor mm-hmm. was so much fun, and oh, these discussions were so great. And I'm thinking, uh, yeah, biology and physics and organic chemistry, like really? what? And there was no part of me that felt like I took advantage of all the magnificence and all the learning opportunities that I had because I felt like I had no options, I had no choices, right? And I regretted it. And that feeling of regret is really, Mm -hmm. it's sad, right? And so the only piece of advice I give to my students really at at Wharton, they're young, they're undergrads, like, Professor Tayyapur, I don't know what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm like, I'm 48, I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. Like, you're okay, kid, right? (laughs) Explore, take a walk, you'll figure it out, right? But don't regret that you didn't let yourself, give yourself the freedom of exploration or just the the freedom of trying different things, right? Because you think this is the only path you were supposed to take. Mm -hmm. That goes to scarcity again, right? So not having options, not having other things that you're willing to advance or try, even uncertainty. Like, I don't know if I have another option, but you know what? This doesn't feel right. Yeah. So I'm just going to go and let's see what happens. 
that confidence allows you to not regret. Yeah. There's nothing worse than that feeling of regret, I think, of the should have been and could have been and I didn't because I didn't think I could. Totally. And yeah, again, yeah, it's what you it's what you just said doesn't feel right or even it's it feels right. And I don't care what everyone else's marriage right. looks like or how much everyone thinks I should be making or not making. You're kind of the only person who can know whether right. it's a good deal. Right. It's your happiness. Yeah. We do these exercises in class and then, you know, the moment of don't let your ego get super hurt by this because I'm going about to show everybody's results from this negotiation. When that goes up, that's so people feel a certain way about their deal that they just got until this screen drops down. And all of a sudden they're like, oh God, I thought I had done really well. This is horrible. But I'm like, there's no screen in life. Like no screen is going to drop down out of the sky and tell you whether you just got a good deal, right? Your only measure is are you happy? Mm-hmm. Nobody else can tell you how happy you were supposed to be. And nobody can tell you how full your heart is or how satisfied you feel. So just check in with yourself, right? And then, and then you're good. If you can say, I thought about it, I'm good, that's all that matters. But we don't, I don't know, I don't think we give ourselves the space to do that. I really don't. It's a place of judgment. Like, how? what will other things people think about this deal? Who cares? You know, yeah. other people don't have to live with you. It's you. You have to live with you. Tomorrow morning, you're getting up. How do you feel, right? I think that's the only thing that really matters. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Maury Teharipour. For more, head to maurytaharipour.com. That's M-O-R-I-T-A-H-E-R-I-P-O-U-R. And I hope you'll get a copy of her book, Bring Yourself, available now. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.